The scripture reading today comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 14, starting in verse 14. Revelation 14, 14, continuing to 20. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over a fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So ends the reading of God's word. Children's three-year-old through kindergarten are now dismissed to Little Landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. I sure missed worshiping together with you last Lord's Day. Thank you, Lord, for the snowstorm. But we are so glad to be together. It's such a joy to sing and to pray and now to study and worship over God's word. Would you pray with me once again? Father, I ask for help now to become inaudible and invisible and for your voice to speak plainly through Revelation 14 to strengthen all who are trusting in you in the sound of my voice. To ready them and steady them for the day of your reaping. For the hour is soon upon us when you, Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come back in a cloud and in your return you will reap. And gather to yourself the wheat whom you have died to cleanse, purify, and save. And another angel will reap grapes dedicated for the wrath of God. And that winepress of your wrath will be their trampling. There's a sober joy in this passage, Lord. We don't want to miss either the sobriety or the joy. Confirm for those in this room who know you that they're yours and that the end of the world will unfold exactly like you planned and said. And that will be their comfort. Hour by hour, day by day, to stay faithful to you and to know you are faithful to them. And for those who are grapes and say, yes, but can I too be wheat? Yes. While there's yet time, miracles occur and grapes become wheat. You can do it, Lord. Do it in our midst today. Do it in hearts that you're preparing even now by the week you've given them and the life you've given them right up to this moment who hear this passage and find such a joyful sobriety to say, I think I'm a grape, but I don't want to be anymore. I want to be wheat. Do that among the children as they're hearing the word of God and let the word create faith in their hearts as well. 
do that among us in conversation around the meal to follow and the rest of this Lord's Day and the week and the weeks and years and decades that follow until you return. Prepare your bride well for your return, O Christ, I pray. And use your word to that great end. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Revelation is all about joy. This passage is all about joy. I have studied this passage a great deal and struggled to understand not only its meaning, that's fairly clear, but its tone, its feel, what's it supposed to do in me? And the answer is it's supposed to create joy in me. Where there isn't joy in reading this passage, then it's time for our whole emotions to be recalibrated back unto God. Like a woefully warped and out-of-tune guitar, we need to be retuned back to the A440 of God's joy. We saw in Revelation chapter 12, if you remember, two and a half chapters ago, all the believers gathering in heaven, and there was great joy in heaven. In fact, the voice commanding joy is Christ's voice. Listen to verse 12 from Revelation 12. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. What causes joy in Revelation 12? Joy in Revelation 12 is Christ gathering all his bride to be with himself and destroying all those who oppose him, including the devil. We will see some months from now in Revelation 18, the same joy. Babylon and all that's evil in the world is crushed. And the command of heaven is, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Revelation is written for joy. It's written for the rejoicing of God's people. It's written in the first century and in the 21st century to say to Christians who suffer, who go through sorrow and even hardship, you can rejoice with sober and real joy because the God you serve wins in the end. He'll gather his bride. He will destroy his enemies. I love when Doug Wilson says the whole Bible's in six words. Slay the dragon, get the girl. That's what causes the joy. Amen and amen. That's what's happening here in Revelation 14, 14, the passage Kevin just read. It's written to embolden believers to carry out the obedience of faith. It's written to you and me so that we say it's, it's awkward and weird and there's pressure and there's even fear in my heart and sometimes shame against believing in Jesus and living for him in my family, in my marriage, in my friendships, in my online relationships, at school or at work or around the community. Yet the boldness that comes from this passage is there's a joy that wells up in the heart of every believer and says Christ's bride will be finally and fully saved and protected. That's what the wheat is here in these verses. And God's enemies will be utterly trampled. That's what the grapes are here in these verses. And both of those give us sober but a very real joy. If you find yourself having read and exposed yourself to this passage, maybe for the first time in a long time or ever, and you think, wow, he is really stretching to find joy in this passage, you will see it as we go. There is real joy here, I promise. If you don't yet feel it, even as we're studying this passage, ask the Lord to recalibrate yourself so that what gives you joy is the very thing that gives him joy. 
What gives you joy is the very thing that he's doing. What gives you joy is the very thing that he says he's going to do and then brings it to pass. Let that be your joy and let all lesser counterfeit joys be ejected out of your life. God has good plans for you and for the world. He has a specific outcome, and this is it. It's laid out in plain, clear terms here, even though this is symbolic and it's apocalyptic. It's not hard to understand. And then say, I want to be sure before I leave out of this room today that I am not a grape, but I am wheat. I am not a grape. (laughs) I am wheat. I am not hated by God. I'm loved by him. Praise his holy name. And if you've never known that confidence and that assurance, you should receive it today. May this be the day that God miraculously changes you from a grape to a stalk of wheat. This is a sober passage. No one invents this stuff. Blood flowing as high in a river as high as a bridle from a horse, four or five feet deep, for 180 miles, 1,600 stadia. Nobody invents that. That's just too gruesome. It's just too cosmically shocking, too stunning, far too just. So it's so risky and even wrong and and proud and unholy, revealing the very reason why the grapes of wrath is talked about in the Bible. When you find in the American culture, people taking this image, ripping the grapes of wrath phrase out of its context, and then cursing people with it, saying, may the grapes of wrath crush you. Richard Phillips, commenting on this passage, makes plain that there are two stunning examples. Maybe these are the ones coming to your mind. I thought of them as well, and he reminded me as I was studying this passage that John Steinbeck's book, The Grapes of Wrath, you've heard of it? It's a a story of economic hardship where the workers are right in their violence and use of violence against unjust oversight. That's a misuse of this phrase because it's taking this holy phrase that God alone has the right to do to level on people and it's horizontally cursing others by saying, you are under God's wrath. Or Julia Ward Howe in her 1862 publication of Battle Hymn of the Republic, song that we might sing, a song that we might appreciate, still written to say, when I see Union troops marching to fight against those slave-holding Confederate troops, I see the grapes of God's wrath. Mine eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord, trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. Really, really. It's so dangerous, is it not, to take the vertical statement of God's wrath against sin, and level it horizontally no matter how just your political cause. Both are misuses of this passage. Both contribute to thinking less of this passage, not more. Both reveal the need for this passage in the first place. Chapter 1, verse 7, you might remember way back at the beginning of Revelation. This will be familiar to you. John has a vision of Christ, the vision of the glorious Christ. May you see him in your mind's eye right now as I read this. Behold, he, Christ, is coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. 
Now in chapter 14, the promise of Christ coming in the clouds to cause the nations to wail and moan and mourn, to come back and bring justice against those who pierced him, and on on behalf of all those who hate Christ and reject him, there is a warning, there is a danger, there is a wrath yet to come, and that's promised in chapter 1, verse 7. Now it's being fulfilled right here in Matthew, or rather Revelation chapter 14. Jesus pronounced it and predicted it in Matthew 26. Listen, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, they asked Jesus, and he said, you've said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's Jesus speaking specifically to Caiaphas the high priest in Matthew 26. Jesus said, I'm the Son of Man, I'm coming on the clouds, and I'm coming to bring justice and righteousness and the kingdom of God. Here in chapter 14, we began the chapter seeing the Lamb, Jesus Christ, risen and exalted, his entire church gathered around him, worshiping him, the church triumphant. And then we heard three angels flying midair proclaiming the gospel. They kept saying over and over and over again, do not worship the beast, do not worship the beast, do not worship the beast, worship Christ alone. The last 11th hour opportunity to repent is at hand Repent and turn to worship Christ. And then finally, Christ himself said, Blessed are all those who die in the Lord. For those who are in the Lord are my weak. They will receive my mercy, and I will preserve them even to the very end. Those who refuse to worship me do not have other options for worship. They will all end up worshiping the beast and follow his destruction. We're all worshipers. We're all called to worship. We will all worship mightily in the age to come and in this age, but there won't be an option, a variety of options to worship. There will be two persons to worship. There will be the false beast, Satan, and his his entire structure of counterfeit trinity against the one true God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or there will be the one true God, and you will worship either one or the other. That's why this passage is so stark It's so clear. It's so simple even. There is wheat to be reaped and brought near to Christ because they love him and he loves them, and there are grapes. They do not love Christ. They worship the beast, and they will be trampled underfoot. I want you to see two observations. The passage splits right in half. So simple. Verses 14 through 16, the harvest of wheat is Christ gathering his elect. The harvest of wheat is Christ gathering his elect. Look at it with me. Then I looked and behold a white cloud, seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is the Son of Man, a reference to Christ. Christ is here fulfilling exactly what we saw in Revelation 1, but it's also fulfilling Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw, Daniel writes, in the night visions, and behold, 
With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Jesus, after rising from the dead, ascended in a cloud into heaven. And we're told by Luke in Acts 1 that the two angels said to all the people who saw it, they said, Christ is going to return in the very same way. And so here is the fulfillment of all these passages. Christ comes back on a white cloud, signifying the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory as it were, white because it's pure, on a cloud because he's God, wearing a crown because he's the victor, the champion, and he has a sickle in his hand. The sickle is very much like the gospel because what he's doing is he, with a sickle, is is under the command of the angel from God's authority, he is leveling it across all humanity on the earth. And all who are repentant and and bowed down because they are wheat, they are freed from their roots of sin on the earth. This gospel has a sickle power in the life of every believer that it saves, for it frees us from the sin and the roots of sin that we are grounded in, in this earth, as it were. It's for the wheat, and it's only for the wheat. How do we know that? You see the word very clearly at the end of verse 15, earth is fully ripe. That fully ripe word means dried, a grain dried and ready to be harvested. That's what fully ripe means in its original Greek term. That tells us that he is reaping here not everything but the wheat, that which he gathers to himself. He said he would do this. Listen to Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Also, he promised it in a parable in Matthew 13. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is exactly what Paul foretold, prophesying in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. These are the elect. The wheat are those that Christ gathers to himself. They're the ones, Revelation 13 said, had their names written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Jesus prophesied of this moment in history when he said in Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. It's my understanding that this is exactly what Revelation 14 is talking about. Sickle gospel proclamation has severed us from the sins that embed us in the soil, as it were, of this world. And they free us, ready to go to be with Christ as his sheaves, his first fruits, as Revelation 14 says. His beloved, his elect, his bride. Matthew 24 again, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation, Of those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Same reference to Christ. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn 
And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. It's the white cloud. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's exactly what Jesus prophesied and now comes to pass right here in Revelation 14. Can you imagine the joy on Jesus' face when he's the bridegroom having cleansed and died for and purified his bride millennia before, and then reigns in heaven at the Father's right hand, praying for his bride. Stay faithful, church at the landing. Stay faithful. My power, my spirit, my grace is within you. I will secure you and beautify you and prepare you. And then I'm going to come with a sickle in my hand and I'm going to free you from the bonds of this earth and I'm going to gather you to myself. See the joy on Jesus' face as the bridegroom gathers his bride. I can remember it when Kathy and I were married 37 years ago. Great joy in my heart as we were married in the building that's Lakeview Covenant Church back in 1985, September 21st. I can remember the joy of her coming down the aisle. I can remember the joy of, of celebrating with, with family and friends. I can remember the joy we've enjoyed together for these 37 years. Think of the infinitely higher joy Christ has in his bride. Imagine, finally, I'm coming to get you. You've suffered, you've endured, you've been beaten and lied about and oppressed and afflicted, but I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to finally gather you and hold you to myself and take you to where I am. I told you there was joy in this passage. Think about the joy Christ has on his face when he gathers you to himself. Every time we proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, every time we say, come sinner, confess your sin before this Savior, lay down your burdens and all your doubts and all your shame and all your guilt, lay down your past and, and your present and your future, lay down all the Unholy things that have ever been said about you or done to you, lay down all the unholy things you've ever said or done to anyone. Whenever your sin is reminded you by someone or by the spirit of the enemy himself, lay that down. And the shame that creeps in at night or the triggers that come to your mind that triggered such sorrow for sin that you've committed or others have committed against you, take it all Lay it down before this Savior and let his blood wash over you and cleanse you from sin. Then rise and be hugged and held and kissed and loved by him with a love that you knew you were made for and found in no one but him alone. Every time the gospel is preached, it isn't just a human interchange. It's the living Christ laying down his sickle and saying, I'm reaping another stalk of wheat for myself. I'm sparing another one from having to go through eternal damnation and the trotting of, under God's winepress of wrath. Jesus said in Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Christ looks at Russia and Ukraine, at the right and the left, at the rich and the poor, at every ethnicity that he's made. 
And he sees them with compassion as sheep without a shepherd and harassed and helpless. He doesn't see them as one who he is only eager to crush with grapes of wrath. Woe to us if we take the grapes of wrath and declare them like a curse on others. One's Christ looks upon as wheat that he means to harvest. Oh, how we should put a guard over our mouths when we talk about the eternal well-being of another human being. Your question should be most deeply, am I wheat? Am I under his favor and ready for his sickle gathering with his gospel? Am I going to be loved and held and adopted and receive the fullness of his blessing for an eternity? Is that who I am? Jesus answered his disciples when they were wondering the very same thing, and he uses this exact terminology to try to help you and I feel the weight of how to know whether we are wheat or not. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, Jesus said in John 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know you are wheat if you are ready to give up everything that this life affords in order that you might have Christ and him eternally. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, are you serving him? Are you running from service? Are you serving him or are you serving yourself? Are you serving him or are you serving the beast? If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Do you follow Christ or do you follow someone else? Do you follow Christ or do you follow your own emotions, wishes, and feelings? Do you follow Christ or do you follow the beast? Those who have died to themselves and trusted in Christ, serve him, follow him. Where he is, his servants will be also, he says. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Revelation 14 is the Father, through Christ, honoring all those he gathers to himself. Take every phrase to heart in the Bible. Believe in Christ in an ongoing, ever-growing, sin-confessing life. Do not trust in a past decision. If that past decision was genuine, then you're trusting in Christ today. Look to Christ today. Look to him tomorrow. Look to him every day, even when it gets hard. Your looking to Christ is the hope and evidence that his hope surges within you, and you are wheat and not grapes. Look at verses 17 through 20. The harvest of grapes is Christ defeating his enemies, and this too gives joy. This is what the book of Revelation celebrates, and we will celebrate with them in heaven And there's a sober celebration in our hearts even now for this truth. Though I suspect like me and like you, the more we think about it, the more painful it becomes to realize this is exactly what God has planned before the foundation of the world for unbelievers. And this is a kind of suffering that no human being can even begin to put words to, much less apply to someone else. God alone has the righteousness, the holiness, and the goodness to apply this. Look with me to verse 17 through 20. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle, and another angel came out from the altar. 
the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. I take this to be a fulfillment of Joel 3. Listen to Joel 3, verse 13. Put in the sickle, God says through the prophet Joel, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. In one verse, Joel 3.13, there's both the harvest of the, of the grain, the wheat, for the gathering in, the first fruits, precious to God, and then there's also the treading of the winepress, the overflowing vats of the blood of those who have committed themselves to only evil continually by rejecting Christ. The angel comes out of the temple, meaning he has the authority of God. Another angel comes from where there's fire. Do you remember Revelation chapter 8? Fire was gathered together. It was the very wrath of God, and it was going to be cast down on the earth. These angels that we've already seen in Revelation chapter 8, they come out, and they are given authority, and they are given the command to take another sickle, the sickle of God's good and righteous judgment, and to lay that sickle against clusters of grapes, and to bring those clusters of grapes gathered as it were, ripe in the sense that grapes are ripe, not in the, in the same Greek word that grain is ripe, but these are ripe in the sense that they're ready to be trampled and made into wine. They're gathered and they're put in the wine press, but the wine press is God's wrath. This is God gathering all those who have rejected the message of the gospel. They've rejected what the angels have said. They've rejected what they've seen of God in nature. They've rejected Christ in all manner and fashion, and they have only chosen evil continually. This is exactly similar morally to the kind of flood God brought through Noah back in the book of Genesis. The winepress is the place where Workers would take the fresh, ripe grapes and they would walk barefoot on them and trample them so that the juice, the blood of the grapes, as it were, would drain out through channels and it would be made into wine. Many observe this passage and they say, notice that the Son of Man isn't specifically doing the reaping here. It's the angels with the sickle in hand, and they have the authority of God to gather the wine press, the, the, the grapes into the wine press of the wrath of God. It's, it's like saying the angels are out and they're preparing and warning to take a sickle and gather to God all those who've rejected him, all those who trampled upon his people, chapter 11, the very same verb is used. You might remember the believers were told, you're going to be trampled on. And believers have been throughout the history of the church and shall be until Christ returns. And so God, in his wrath, is actually loving his glory by pursuing his justice, and he's also loving his church by bringing a trampling on the people who trampled his bride. But is Christ involved here at all? I wonder what you'd answer. Look at verse 20. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So who's doing the trotting? 
And I'll give you a glimpse to the answer by reading ahead, Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him in white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So think with me now. Christ who comes to gather to himself his precious bride, symbolized by wheat here, is also the one who tramples the grapes, the souls, the persons who trampled his church, chapter 11, and pierced his side, trampling him while he was on the cross. The justice of God is in the hands of Christ, and he brings this mercy to his beloved ones who have bowed the knee in repentance, not because they're deserving or worthy, but because of his stunning grace and mercy, and those who have stiff-necked and resist and stood against with mocking and evil hatred Christ and all that he teaches, they are under Christ's feet, and his robe is dipped in their blood. The one who was trampled at Calvary stands in righteous, just glory, trampling the lives of those who trampled him and his bride. So God says through Isaiah, chapter 63, verses 3 and 4, I have trodden the winepress alone. I think this is the voice of Christ. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Is God's wrath just and good? Yes, it is. Can it exist with his love? Of course it can, because he's doing it out of love for his glory and love for his beloved bride. The greater question for anyone considering this passage, maybe this deep for the first time, is why in the world has God been so very slow to level his wrath on all of us? I mean, why do my sentences keep coming out? Why does oxygen still work in my lungs? Why does gravity still keep holding things in order on the earth? And why do pandemics go away? And, and why does the sun come up? And why does the seasons move? And why does anything good happen to any of us who are deserving of the wrath that comes from Christ upon evil this way? That's the bigger question. Why has God been so slow to wrath and so patient? In his justice. Why, when he brought a flood on the earth 
And we are certainly no less evil than those who were committing evil in the days of Noah's flood. Why has he been so long-suffering and patient before bringing some kind of global destruction again? Until you say, I, Brent Nelson, am not a good man. I deserve the wrath of God. I deserve to be treated as a grape under the wrath of God, and my blood splattered on his clothes, for he is just and right to crush me. Until I say that of myself and know it to be true, grace and mercy don't mean anything to me. The gospel seems boring. Worship seems meaningless. Preaching seems useless. The church seems forgettable. The glory of God seems small. But once I realize I'm deserving of all the trampling of Christ upon my grape-like life, I am shocked out of my mind that he would mercifully call me wheat and love me with all the love he has. When the river of blood flows for 1,600 stadia high as the horse's bridle, I don't think merely we're to do just equivalencies into 180 miles. I think 1,600 is the number of judgment squared, 40 times 40. This is judgment judgmentalized into perfection. 1,600 stadia is just... 40 in the days Christ was in the wilderness for 40 days, in the years that Israel was in the wilderness, in the 400 years they were in slavery. This is just the way God communicates universal judgment. He's not saying there's a 180 mile span in which my blood will flow. He's saying blood will flow and my judgment will be felt in its righteous wrath across the face of the earth and throughout time. All persons who reject Jesus Christ and then thereby only worship the beast are under the danger of this wrath. Turn from worshiping anything other than Christ. Turn from worshiping yourself or any other experience or any other theology or religion or philosophy. Turn from any other so-called narrative And believe the one true God who stands before you in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make certain you know you are Christ today and proclaim him boldly as the voice of Christ through you calls grapes out of their grapeness into becoming wheat. It calls goats out of their goatness into becoming sheep. Calls the dead out of their deadness into becoming alive. Did you see the gospel here in this passage, did you see it sweetly? Did you see this sweet, beautiful thing that I've never seen before except studying it this week? Look with me again to verse 20. And the wine press was trodden outside the city. It's a reference to Zechariah 14, 1 through 5, that you could read if you want to later, where God says, I am going to bring judgment outside the city. I am going to bring judgment away from Jerusalem. That's exactly what John and his readers would have originally thought in that time. Even though Jerusalem was under great duress at John's writing, it was a precious city to him and to all his readers. And here, this outside the city back in Zechariah would have meant Jerusalem. So here, 
God says, I'm going to take out into the valley of Jehoshaphat those that I am going to trot under my feet, and I am going to trample them outside the city. But the writer of Hebrews looks at that passage and then says of Jesus who died on Mount Calvary outside of Jerusalem. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So if Christ is carrying your sin on his shoulders, if you have rolled his your shoulders on, excuse me, your sin on his shoulders, such that your sin is no longer yours, and he has taken it from you, and he has given in exchange his righteousness to you, then you are wheat, and you can say, Come, Lord Jesus, bring your sickle. Come on, angels, loud voice, bring your sickle. Bring the end of the world to its final conclusion. Jesus, come get your bride. She's ready. But if you have yet to lay your sin on Christ's shoulders and receive from him his righteousness, then do it today. Do it today. Charles Spurgeon said this, Christ has stood as your substitute for as many as receive him. Have you received Christ? If Christ, who has God's Son, suffered so bitterly for sins that were not his own, how bitterly must you who are not God's sons but God's enemies suffer for sins that are your own? And you must suffer unless Christ, the substitute, stands for you. If you're a believer, Christ stands for you. He's the substitute who's been in your place. This doctrine is hated by so many, but it's precious. It's the very core of the gospel. Erasing this doctrine of Christ being our bloody substitute erases the entire gospel and the hope that the church has for salvation. If you recognize God's justice in trampling out grapes in his winepress of wrath, if you recognize Christ's justice in trampling over these and causing blood to flow high as a horse's bridle, then you will too say with Revelation 19, enjoy, hallelujah, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Let's pray. I know, Lord, that there are many who know you and love you and are wheat in this room and in the hearing of my voice through live stream. And I know there are many who anticipate your coming with hope and with joy. They say, come on the cloud, son of man, and bring your judgment. End the work of evil. Trample upon your enemies. Sober joy will be in my heart as you do. But Lord, sickle me from this earth. Free me by the gospel from this earth to be like you. Don't let me sin anymore. Bring an end to my sinful nature once and for all and gather me like wheat to yourself to be loved, cherished as first fruits, named as your bride, celebrating at the marriage supper of the Lamb with you and knowing the great cost that you spent to bring me there. 
Get glory for yourself, O Christ, in revelation and in the preaching of the word and in this church and in our hearts and in our conversations. Get glory for yourself in the faith that causes, that rises up in our hearts from the word. The word creates faith. Get glory for yourself in the lives of bold gospel sharing that we lead because we know the end will arrive soon. The hour will shortly come. The devil's time is short. Get glory for yourself in all the lives that are touched powerfully by the word of God so that they are emboldened to live out their faith against all pressures and against all odds. Lord, I thank you for Revelation 14. I thank you for this sober passage. It does give me joy. But I confess, mingled with my joy is, is a horror at exactly what this passage says and what will come to pass. But I trust you, and I love you, and I know you are just and good in all your ways. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Indeed, you will. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who has not yet tasted of that sober joy, that loves your justice, but loves even more your mercy and grace, would you lavish it upon them even now today? Even as we sing and sing over them how much we need you, would they hear us singing it and say, yep, that's me, I need you, Lord? Would you cause those burdened by guilt and shame to receive afresh the forgiveness and grace that's in Christ Jesus? Would you cause those who came in with resistant hearts to have soft and tender hearts to your grace and mercy right now? Would you cause those who were utterly unplanned to come near the word of God to find themselves drawn magnetically and powerfully to know and love you and serve you and dedicate their lives to you? Would you purify me and us as a church in all the ways that you plan to to ready us for the day of your return? Do this in all manner of more things than I know to ask or imagine. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen.